Hey everybody, welcome to Sex and Politics, a very special bonus podcast for Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers. Well, this episode of Sex and Politics is a very special treat for you, I hope, but mostly perhaps a very special treat for me. You may have heard me jokingly refer to myself as a monarchist every once in a while. I am kind of a closet monarchist, but I am certainly 100% a royal history buff. Uh, in my free time, I like to read biographies and histories of royal families. Well, I recently read a biography of a queen that I hadn't given much thought to and reached out to the author of this biography and invited him on the show. And I was surprised that this bona fide, actual, serious historian would agree or did agree to come on my dirty little sex and relationship bonus advice podcast. Really surprised that he said yes. Delighted that he said yes. His name is Gareth Russell. Please enjoy this, my conversation with author, podcaster, historian, Gareth Russell. Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr, or as they're calling him now in the West End and on Broadway, The Six. That would be The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Northern Irish historian Gareth Russell is the author of several books, including Young, Damned, and Fair, his best-selling biography of Henry VIII's often overlooked fifth wife, Catherine Howard. He's also the host of the podcast Single Malt History and the man behind what is consistently one of the most fascinating accounts on Instagram, underscore Gareth Russell. Hey, Gareth, you are a real historian. Yeah, well, uh, it depends who you talk to, but yes, I am. Uh, thanks for having me. It, well, it's I want to thank fun. you as a real historian for demeaning yourself by coming on my Goofy Sex podcast. <laughs> no, I. you know what? I always um, was t in the in the days when Sex and the City was still cool. I was always teased by friends for being a Charlotte. So now I, I can say <laughs> I, got, I got closer to Carrie. There you go. There you go. All right. Because we, we are going to make you, as we make all our guests, give a little sex advice at the end. So you will get to be Carrie. Yeah. Um, God help your listeners. I, I have to say, you know, I just loved your book. It's going to seem outside our wheelhouse here at the Savage Lovecast. And I promise you, listeners, mm -hmm. I'm going to jam it into our wheelhouse. I devoured it. And you made me fall in love with Catherine Howard. Oh, thank and you. I, and I'm a royal history geek, and I'm a, I read tons of royal biographies, and I've always just can, been kind of like done with the tutors for the last 20 years because mm -hmm. there's just so much. And I yeah. didn't expect to fall in love with a new book about the tutors, with one of Henry VIII's queens. But at the end of this book, I had just so fallen in love with Catherine Howard that I was literally rationing out chapters because I didn't want the book to end. I didn't want her to die. Well, do you know, I, I understand that because I – as I'm a, first of all, thank you. But I understand that attachment to Catherine because when I finished the book, uh, I have a slight superstition, or maybe it's just a head-clearing device, but I check into a hotel for the last two days of finishing a book, um, partly because my apartment by that stage has just become sort of a, pr a prison of frustration uh, towards the end of writing a book. But when I checked in and I, I finished sort of the last chapter, or sorry, the bit where she dies, I did feel kind of bereft, partly because you've lived with this person for, I mean, I think I she was queen for such a short period of time, I spent longer researching it than she did living it. Mm. And 
you've lived with this person for for a few years in my case and um I had also done my postgraduate degree on her household so it had been on and off for years and when it's over there's a strange silence and the other reason I felt a bit well I did feel bereft was there is something so unjust about what happens to her there is something when you really think back on it this is the handmaid's tale with a tiara it's really really dark because you have to take away the ball gowns and the jewelry and all the rest of it and realize this is a society that did not punish her husband for issuing orders in the suppression of the rebellion in Ireland to kill the women and children or to burn the north to the ground for rebelling. This is a society that thought it was completely fine to behead a woman before she was 21 because she had fooled around with one man before she was married and slept with one before she was married, and then met up with one at night afterwards. That's what the charge was. It's let's, horrible. Uh, let's back way up for a second. Yeah. For listeners who come to my podcast for you know contemporary talk about sex and, sure. and politics and, and sex advice, let's just assume that there are some people out there listening right now who don't know what a tutor is and don't know who Henry VIII was. If you could give the elevator pitch on who the hell the Tudors were and who Henry VIII was. So the Tudors were a royal family. They were descended from the previous royal family. They took the throne of England. They ruled England, Ireland, and Wales from 1485 to 1603. During those 118 years, there are massive changes, uh, most of them under the second king of the family, Henry VIII. He was king for 38 years, 1509 to 1547. He married, as you said, six times. Catherine Howard was the fifth. In order to achieve his second marriage, he split with the Roman Catholic Church and set up what was then basically Catholicism without the Pope. They didn't change that much, but it was the Church of England that is basically the ancestor of uh, Episcopalianism in the US. He beheads a second wife. The, the third one dies in childbed, which um, people claim upset him, but there was very little evidence of that. Uh, he had the son he wanted, divorced the fourth wife, who was a German princess. And in 1540, he married Catherine Howard, who was part of one of the, the grandest aristocratic families in England at the time. She was, from, she was the Duke of Norfolk's niece. And she was queen... Uh, until 1541, so not a massive length of time, before a family servant came out of the woodwork and told her brother, who was an evangelical pastor, that Catherine had lost her virginity before she married the king. The pastor tells the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop tells the king, so it's like a game of whispers. And they launch an investigation into Catherine's private life that ends up finding a love letter she wrote to a gentleman of the royal court after her marriage. It is used to say, not that she committed adultery, people make this mistake about her all the time, they say she was executed for committing adultery. Henry VIII was so jittery about, and so he, he had a massive ego, but a fragile one, which is the worst combination in a leader. Tell us about it. So few of them today. Um, <laughs> you know, you published this in 2016. So you were yeah. writing this uh, mm-hmm. BTE before Trump's election. Uh, yes. I, you know, was I right to see Donald Trump and Henry VIII, or am I so damaged by the last six years that I'm seeing Trump everywhere I look? You, you right. Let, let me quote something from the book. Yeah, okay. Like all those around Henry, Catherine was careful to express her views of her husband only in terms of the most abject obedience and adoration. That sounds like Trump's cabinet. I mean, to be honest, I did see very early on, I thought there were comparisons between Catherine and Melania. I do think there are. In the sense that... 
Catherine did kind of go along with everything. There is a sense that Catherine was kind of just waiting to, you know, she was much younger than her husband. If she could just see out however long they had left together, she'd be she'd be fine. And I think she, I mean, Catherine never, even at the end, not once breathed a word of criticism of her husband. And and I think even the courtiers around him who lost loved ones to his executioners, they didn't, very few of them. The criticism tended to be from people who were abroad. Well, what unlike Anne Boleyn, who on hmm. the scaffold where she's about to be beheaded, heaped praise on Henry, yeah. called him her gentle sovereign and and praised his character. At least yeah. Catherine didn't go to her death heaping compliments on her monster husband. Yeah, she kept, She, I mean, she said she deserved it, which was interesting, but I think she kept it quite neutral. And there's an interesting theory that Anne's praise of him is so over the top that people kind of think she was making fun of him. Um, at the she end, being sarcastic I, up there. Yeah, my good gentle lord. I mean, it's you know who's about to behead his wife and mother of his child. It's um, it might be, and it's it's in Anne. I mean, the thing is, if you were if you had family left, if you had family left alive, you kind of had to say that. You had to say lovely things about him to keep them safe. In Anne Boleyn's case, she definitely was, I think, zesty enough that she might have decided to go with one last middle finger. Dig. You yeah. uh, you compared Catherine Howard to Melania Trump, which I just want to jump in here and say Melania Trump is a despicable racist piece of shit who's gone along with everything, uh, I don't think, because, uh, because she disapproves, but because she approves and she makes me sick and yeah. like free Melania memes and this assumption that Melania isn't right there in the gutter and the sewer with Donald. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I don't think I could read a biography of Melania Trump that would make me fall in love with her the way young damned and fair made me fall in love with Catherine Howard. I think definitely as the presidency wore on, it became clear to me they weren't. I mean, certainly at the start, and I think in kind of, it's one of those things in biographical details that there is a certain amount of similarity. There is in Catherine I mean, certainly, actually, with Catherine, you did see instances where she tried to she she persuaded him to free two um, prisoners from the Tower of London. She interceded during the royal tour of the North to get a local spinster accused, uh, sorry, pardoned of some crime. We don't know what that was, but spinsters were vulnerable in 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 the medieval late medieval era. I, I wanted to read your description of Henry VIII, which I think is the best description, you know, I, like I said, I'm a royal biography geek. Most people don't know this about me. And I think it's the best description of Henry VIII I've ever read. And it also would absolutely apply to Donald Trump. Henry VIII was a man who had somehow gotten rotten without ever being ripe. Uh, I wish I could write like that. Oh, th- thank you. It's, it was it actually, <laughs> that, that, I remember that line because I was born out of a particular moment of not spite, but um, it was born out of frustration because there is a kind of m- movement, maybe a strong word. There is, a, I think, a trend in Tudor history, particularly online, to downplay what Henry VIII did and to say, actually, it was all contextually normal. He wasn't that bad a king. And there's also a theory for listeners, that, you know, Henry was king, as I said, 1509 to 47. And in 1536, he fell off his horse. And this is during a jousting match. And this has been taken, like, two plus two has been added together to come up with the historical equivalent of 917. They have said, he he fell off his horse. He knocked himself unconscious. Maybe he got a traumatic brain injury. Maybe there was a change of character. Completely. And he was nothing but lovely before that. And I'm like, 
I mean, there were the basically what happened after 1536 is he introduced a lot more policies that were really unpopular. So he became um, more, there were more people for him to punish because more people disagreed with him. So this idea that Henry VIII was the golden prince who turned into Bluebeard is bullshit. It's just complete nonsense. And it, 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 it riles me because I feel like if you had any other historical figure who publicly executed or murdered two of his wives, we would not be sitting here trying to rationalize, oh, you know, maybe, you know, he was really good at music and he could speak languages like, great, Hitler liked to paint. What's your point? Um, (laughs) And he murdered, and and like, he murdered two of his wives on the most trumped up charges, accused Anne Boleyn or had Cromwell accused Anne Boleyn of committing incest with her own brother, who was also brutally executed. And in Catherine's case, you know, and the case of, you know, her teenage crush, uh, whose name is Francis. These were yep. two teenagers. She was not betrothed to the king. She was not married to the king. They were living in the same household. And yep. they kind of like messed around with each other. And when this was yeah. discovered after she married Henry VIII, then they went out and found whatever they needed to find to to, to rationalize cutting right. her head off to for and- being a teenager. For being a teenager, and that's it. And the and there's this really the the other thing that kind of in in shooter pop and sort of the the online community, which usually is great, but one of the more frustrating things is, and I you know, put things in the book where Catherine does not come out in the best light. She she was often not great with her servants. She 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 could push down and and play the privileged card when she which wanted made her to. more human. She's not. Uh, yeah, a car, you know, plaster saint. You know, she is a she is a victim, uh, and mm-hmm. is brutally victimized. But she is complicated and capable of bad actions too, which made made her more human. Absolutely, she was. She could be. A, she could be quite vain, and she was really quite a snob. But that the point is that that's your job is to tell the whole story. And actually, the thing with Catherine is her her story's been taken from her so many times that putting back in some of the genuine negatives she had felt like like fleshing her out. And the thing about Francis that I, that I think is really relevant in talking about just what a monstrosity of of a miscarriage of justice this was for your listeners, Francis was a member of her household. They had been betrothed, maybe, when they were younger, but they had had a relationship. Which, which at the time, two people just said, I promise to marry you to each other in private, and they were betrothed. That was a legally binding marital contract. Just two people in private saying, I'm going to marry yes. you. And she, what seems to have happened from her recollection is actually that she kind of thought it was a joke and that Francis took it very seriously. But, I mean, that's sort of, you know... I put both self-serving the rationalization. In. Right, exactly. She was terrified. He was... A noted moron, but um, you know he and Francis is. I mean, Francis is probably one of the most incredibly unlikable people I've ever written about. He was just a narcissistic, demanding imbecile. He was a frat boy. He was an imbecile. And Hot dumb fuck. We've all seen them. That, we've all, we've all seen the, it, the the girl we admire as a teenager who's got just in, is infatuated yeah. with the the shitty guy, the bad guy, the hot dumb fuck. And I think Francis must have been scorching. Oh, I I think Francis. You know, Francis sort of ha- had enough notches in his bedpost that it resembled a toothpick by the end of it, you know, I think. <laughs> but And he was, I think, you know, I'm working on a paper at the minute that I'm sort of trying to argue that I think a lot of the evidence indicates k- kind of narcissistic rage or something narcissistic when she left because he kept following her everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was part of the problem, that she couldn't keep him hidden in the past. But, but for all of that, what Francis 
Frances had done all this before she was married, and the, the king still insisted that he was the one who was tortured for information, and he was executed. And ultimately, this was for something that had happened when he and Catherine were teenagers before she'd ever met the king. They did execute another another courtier called Thomas Culpepper for having met up with her in her bathroom at night, which um, they said, you know, even if they didn't sleep together, it doesn't suggest. They had intent. Totally yeah. unchaste intentions. Uh, and they they also executed uh, Catherine's servant or, or, or woman, uh, her lady in waiting, yeah. waiting, who arranged for them to meet in private to have this moment yeah, together. Yes, so Hen- Henry had bloated the treason laws down. That's the thing that really people have to remember. After he split with the Roman Catholic Church, Henry embarked upon an extension and expansion of the treason laws. But again, I think when people are defending him, they need to bear in mind this was unprecedented in English history. And it wasn't really repeated until Stalinism, which was they they created a law called misprision or misprision, some people say, but misprision of treason that essentially said your thoughts, if they looked, if they were treasonous and they were revealed, that was treason. And if you heard or suspected someone else might have treasonous thoughts and you didn't go to the government, you had also committed treason. So they criminalized thought. And so how they got Catherine was to say, but even if you went, even if you didn't have sex with them in your bathroom or at night when you met up, the fact that you did means that you planned to do it, which means that you considered the thought of one day perhaps conceiving a child that wasn't the king, corrupting the succession. It's this domino of going from a king who made thoughts a sin, a crime, thought sorry. Crimes, thought crimes. Let's yeah. talk about sex. Um, sure. I, I want to talk about what fucking Henry VIII might have been like. But first, we're watching Boris Johnson lose his job right now because of yeah. the sex scandal and not even a sex scandal of his very own. Um, so sex and power and sex and politics are still intrinsically wed, but the sex lives of our rulers now, while they still matter, they're less consequential or consequential in a different way, aren't they? Right. Because, because at this period, you know, at this time, like who the king fucked, who the king married, that determined alliances, whether there's going to be a war mm-hmm. or not. And yet, so sex is somehow much less important, but we're watching Boris Johnson lose his job because of sex. Yeah, I think it's partly because there's now no hiding it. So we look back on certain things that happened in the past, and we know about it because of historians. But the vast majority of people at the time did not know what was going on. And so in the age of like Boris Johnson, or just the, the era we're living in at the minute, you can't really hide it. Once a scandal happens, it's everywhere. And and also, fundamentally, back in 15, the 1540s, they didn't really care what the vast majority of people thought. That just wasn't, you know, democracy was a silly idea that had been born and had died in ancient Greece where it deserved to. That that was what the thought process was. So it, it didn't, nest, until people were rioting about it, they didn't, it wasn't, their, their opinions didn't really factor into it. But it, within the elite, yeah, it really did matter because not only whoever the king was having sex with, it could make and it could break what happened next. Because if a king, Edward IV, Henry VIII's grandfather, is the classic example of this. Charles II, he makes Henry VIII look like a monk um, who came after him in the, in the 1660s. But Charles he wasn't II, a monster. Charles II didn't have people No, Charles II wasn't a monster. Charles II huge was sexual appetites. Huge, well, yes, what Henry VIII had for food, Charles II had for women. But in Char- like, I'm a, I'm a Stuart fan and more of a Hannibal sure. fan than a Tudor fan. Charles II was absolutely devoted to his wife who never bore him a child, didn't set her aside, uh, didn't divorce her. Nope. And he, he really was. His wife, Catherine of Braganza, this very lovely 
gently. Actually, I think she got probably stronger than she's given credit for, but she was a sort of devout Catholic um, Portuguese princess, would have loved to have been a mother. I think there were four miscarriages that just didn't happen, and he fathered yeah. 13 illegitimate children. You know, and not one of them did Charles II refuse to give a noble title to and a vast income. And, you know, in fairness, he was not a deadbeat dad. Like, he, <laughs> he, 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 really, he really looked after them. But what happened with, with Charles II and with Henry VIII's grandfather, Edward IV, is if you had, as a, a male member of the royal family, particularly if you were king, if you had a very, very active sex life, heterosexual sex life, and you ended up conce- uh, fathering children that were born before your marriage, that was a big, big problem because then you, other relatives could say, oh, what if he had said to the woman he wanted to have that child with that he promised to marry her? Did the did the royal marriage then that he had later become bigamist, um, and did the the royal children become disinherited? That did happen a few times, and and bastard children, it had to be very clearly acknowledged they were illegitimate when it had happened, and so there was there were potentials that uh, the too many um, royal cuckoos in the nest could um, could cause a civil war in the next generation or a political crisis. So it absolutely mattered. One of the things I found so fascinating reading the book uh, about Catherine Howard's early life, Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's something that people today may not appreciate or understand or even care to know, is how little privacy people had. Yeah. To have a bedroom, to have a a room you could go in and shut the door, you kind of had to be an aristocrat. You kind of had to be the king to have any privacy, which is why there were so many witnesses to Catherine and Francis's relationship because they weren't having sex in private no so it's i mean it's so that's also there there is a theory some of your listeners may have heard it it's it's actually a modern revival of victorian theory because basically when the victorians wrote about catherine howard they did they they're very open about it by the way you can read some of the books where they say the story of catherine howard is a grand moral lesson to young ladies taking the first steps into the consequences of sin. And essentially what the Victorians could not believe was that the daughter of an aristocratic family could feel sexual impulses on her own. She had to have been corrupted. And so what they, they've characterized, um, Catherine spent most of her time with growing up with her grandmother, the Dodger Duchess of Norfolk. Victorians painted the men she was involved with as lecherous servants because members of the lower classes were supposed to have lower morals. That's why they were called that mm. in Victorian England. It wasn't just economically lower. They were believed to be um, morally inferior to the upper and middle classes. So they painted this idea that Catherine must have been tricked into having sex and by these unworthy men. And there is now, an, uh, this has been sort of revived without the classist overtones to suggest that the, the relationship, uh, that Catherine was repeatedly the victim of sexual assault. And we have, I mean, close to a dozen eyewitness testimonies of her friends and his that were kept separate from each other, who were in the room and saw it happening. And they are very clear that's not what happened. I would say that the relationship with Francis took a a really dark turn after it ended. I think that's when it became. She broke up with him and he's the vengeful ex who won't go the fuck away. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, he, I mean, we wouldn't, I, you know, sometimes I look back on the book and I think, should I have, you know, been really explicit with this point of what I think he was like. But then I think sometimes if authors nail the point home too hard, you're like, let me make up my mind, I'm a reader. What he does afterwards is essentially stalking. I mean, that's what yeah. you would call it today. 
That I was reading, you know, what you did there by not nailing the point home. I, I totally got to 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 this. I was reading about Francis going, oh, I know this guy because I get calls from women now who yeah. have the ex-boyfriend who's stalking them, who they can't shake, who yeah. won't go the fuck away, who won't take no for an answer, who won't take it's over. Or I didn't, I don't feel as strongly or I don't feel at all for you anymore what I felt for you once. And they just right. can't hear that. And Francis was that guy and because he was that guy he wound up getting them both killed yeah that's the try there's that's it in a nutshell and i can't remember which us tv chat show host it was yeah trevor noah at comedy central the daily show yeah he's great and he was commenting on the kim kardashian kanye west thing and he said whatever you think of kim this is one of the wealthiest most privileged women in the world and she can't get someone to leave her the fuck alone she can't get an ex to leave her alone and in many ways Catherine is that as well this is someone who both by birth into into that family but particularly by marriage has gone into the 0.0001% of privilege in, in her society and she still could not get this guy to back the fuck off and leave her alone oh that's so and, interesting you know, that's that's kind of where I think that the relationship with Francis became coercive and dark. And, uh, you know, we, we can say certainly psychologically abusive after it's over. In terms of when it was happening, he sort of love bombs her. He gives her money to buy, you know, nice rose trinkets. He takes her to an embroiderer. And in terms of the sex, yeah, she's in a dormitory with other women at her grandmother's house. And they see it. One of them gets out and leaves the bed and says, you're so noisy. <laughs> It's so interesting because one of the things that also comes up on my show these days is people have this attitude. You know, whenever I give anybody my blessing to engage in any form of public sex, even if, you know, go out of your way to make sure you're in a, like a far dark corner of the park or whatever, if you want to have public right. sex to spice up your straight marriage, it's not just gay people who do this. Invariably, I get a comment or call or a tweet saying someone might see that, might stumble upon them having sex and see it. They aren't consenting to see it, and they will be traumatized by that. Right. And, you know, jump back four centuries. You couldn't avoid seeing people fucking. Everywhere you looked, people were fucking. If you weren't the king of England, you probably slept at night in a room where other people who wanted to fuck were fucking while you were trying to sleep. It's why the Dowager Duchess locks the, her grandmother locked the door to the dormitory every night. It's just Catherine snuck in, stole the key, and had a copy made so they could let the young their boyfriends in afterwards. And, and Catherine did that. That's not a girl who doesn't want the D. That's a girl who wants to jump on the D. <laughs> she went and got the key. She wants the D. I, you know, it's funny. I had two, um, I had two friends who'd gone to boarding school in England. And when they read it, they said, oh, we were, it made us feel so boring. Because when we stole the key, all we wanted to do was steal food. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of last things I want to get to because we're running out of time. Sure. It doesn't sound like sex with... Henry VIII was very enjoyable. Like Henry Kissinger said, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Henry was a tyrant, had all the power. Mm. And yet, uh, there's this description Anne Boleyn has. Or you just, you paraphrase something Anne Boleyn said. Sex with the king was not very enjoyable, but at least it did not last very long. <laughs> so that's kind of why I think she she was making a, she made a sarcastic, she didn't say that at the scaffold, but I think there was an element where Anne was like, See you later, bitches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, why, why do you think? Why do you think Anne gets so much more attention than Catherine? Like reading Catherine's story, it's 
It's heartbreaking. Anne was a bit more of a power player. Anne was there at the you know the beginning of the, the, the break with Rome, the creation of the Church of England. Yeah, um, which my grandmother called uh, my bra- grandmother called Episcopalians Catholics who go to hell. <laughs> so I, I totally get the like Catholicism without the Pope, and so did my grandmother. But, but, you know, reading your book, I really felt. Like, not just that I had given short shrift to this particular tutor, but that history has given her short shrift and not as much attention as she may deserve for the the, the pathos and tragedy of her story. She's She's very much, she's a teenage girl that we've all met, that we understand. I think Anne Boleyn, having lived at the court of... France, and she's a little bit more sort of emotionally distant from us, uh, kind of a different animal. But reading about mm-hmm. Catherine, I know I get calls from 19-year-old Catherine Howards with the boyfriend that they can't shake, the ex, today. Yeah. Well, look, Anne Boleyn is, gets more attention because she's more important. And I, you know, and, and that's just me being sort of a bit ruthless about it. Anne Boleyn is one of British history's most important figures. There's no question of that. I would argue Catherine is equally interesting. That's not the same as equally important. And I mm. try to use the book as a window into her society. Anne Boleyn's tragedy is almost like a Greek tragedy. It's the, it's the tragedy of a great person. It's the tragedy of someone who I think by dint of her personality and a very privileged birth, she was an extraordinary woman with, with a huge um, charisma and intellect and drive. And, you know, she was also Catherine Howard's cousin, which I think adds another sort of spice to the mix. They had a similar sense of charisma and um, glamour. But Catherine's, as you say, is the story of a lot of us. And and it's more and I think it is more relatable and more applicable. And maybe that's the answer. Maybe in history sometimes we focus more on the Cleopatras and the Eleanor of Aquitaines and the Mary Queen of Scots and the Anne Boleyns than we do on the Catherine Howards and on the every man or the every woman. What inspired you to research Catherine Howard's life? What attracted you to her and her story? Initially, it was I was I was looking for a postgrad topic, and I pitched this idea of doing a, a whole dissertation on every queen's household staff from like I think fourteen forty five to fifteen forty seven. And my <laughs> professor said, "You're insane! Absolutely not. <laughs> um, you have to pick something small so that you can go into the depth. They reward depth, not you know at, at postgrad." And he said, "Why don't you pick?" A queen who wasn't there for very long, Henry VIII provided us with a few, uh, and so which he did. And um, so Catherine was because she was queen. She toured England, so I could see a household in residence and in transit. And then as I was doing the the thesis, uh, the professor said, "Do you know that this is really, really different to what's been researched and done before? I think there might be a biography in it." I got my agent not long after that, and she said, look, let's let's do it. Let's do this biography, and then Simon Schuster bought the rights. Can I do my parlor trick for you? Sure. And I have no notes in front of me. I have nothing. Okay. I, 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 most Americans can't do this. Oh, my God. Now I'm going to screw it up because I have performance anxiety. Um, <laughs> Henry VIII, Edward V, Jane Grey, Mary I, Elizabeth I, James I, Charles I, the Interregnum, uh, Oliver Cromwell, the Restoration, Charles II, James II, the Glorious Revolution, William and Mary, and George one two three four, William the Third, Victoria, and this is where I get trouble with numbers. Edward the Sixth, George Seventh. the f- You're gonna do- uh, Edward the Seventh, George yep. the Fifth, Edward the Eighth, yep. George the Sixth, Queen Elizabeth the Second. Well done. Oh, you were a couple of numbers, but all the names were right. 
And, and I'm, well I'm going to like, I usually get it right, but I have absolute performance anxiety doing that. No, no, I'm an actual no, historian. No, that's really, no, that's very impressive because actually you remembered all the things that people like. I mean, sometimes people forget about the interregnum and Oliver Cromwell. But a really, if you ever do that and you just go Charles I, Charles II, you just say, I'm a royalist. And then they can't really, it looks like it was a political decision for you to just forget the time England was a republic. Well, I am a monarchist, <laughs> but I think we should pause to remember that they cut Charles I heads off all right so before we want to and like good came from you know we lost the globe theater but good came from the that english revolution and the glorious revolution it's why england has a monarchy and some other and i'm a monarchist actually um and some other places don't so we're gonna let you try your hand at giving a little bit of sex advice if that's okay absolutely hi dan i have a question for you about eroticized fear my girlfriend recently had a flirty little texting thing uh, with a coworker. It definitely crossed some boundaries, and we had to unwrinkle that a bit together. She'd already realized it was inappropriate and backed out of it before I found out, which was good. And, you know, my girlfriend and I are fine. We, we talked it out, and she definitely wasn't trying to get with this guy or anything. It was just a way to essentially and receive some attention on her part. But it definitely provoked some feelings for me. It is, I would say, one of my biggest fears to be cheated on or left. And although I don't consider this cheating, it definitely was a moment, right? It was something. And then I found myself thinking about this when I was masturbating. And it reminded me of how potent it is as, as an erotic stimulus or whatever. I come harder, I get harder quicker when I think of my partner with another dude. So I guess what's up with that? And do you think there are safe ways to utilize that between us? So Gareth, wouldn't it have been great if Henry VIII could have eroticized his fears when it came to adultery? Like maybe two fewer women wouldn't got their heads cut off. It it would have meant... Less less spill blood and more spilling of other fluids. I think probably would have <laughs> would have probably made uh, Tudor England a, a much happier place. That's really interesting because I think you know the eroticization of fear is linked to the fear of the erotic. There is an element of that of which sort of we're internalizing cultural norms. Uh, you know. One of the things I I made a joke about in the book, I don't know if it landed brilliantly, but I said, you know, in the confession boxes in the the 16th century, priests were really surprised that not a lot of men seem to be admitting to masturbating. And that's because there aren't a lot of witnesses who was going to confess to their own, to to that particular sin. But I think what's interesting is uh, masturbation is often seen and presented as solely wish fulfillment. And actually, it's sometimes a theater of escape. And sometimes what you find uh, erotic is a fear, and it's not something you necessarily want to experience in real life. And you can be really, really turned on, as this gentleman seems to be. And actually, it's not something that you would necessarily want to see in real life. It's not a perfect comparison, but I used to enjoy computer games and things like that. And there's a lot of scenarios there, like you know, racing through a burning medieval city that I really enjoyed in my head, but I don't think I would like in real life. Not to compare this to the tort- <laughs> to the fall of Constantinople, but um, <laughs> I, th- I think it's I think it's an interesting thing to sort of. I think it's good that he knows that that is something that is erotic for him, but always be I think aware that there it's not the same thing to be turned on by something and hope that it will then become true. 
And these are powerful emotional dynamics that you would be playing with. There are certainly people out there who are turned on by their partners, quote unquote, cheating. Your partners have Mm -hmm. the okay to go do it. So it's not actually cheating, but emotionally it feels like cheating and and can actualize that, can do that. Maybe in time, the caller will get there if he even wants to get there. But baby steps if you're going to approach it. But there's nothing wrong with being aroused by something that scares you and that you don't want to have happen. Action movies, horror movies. There's exactly. so much that people understand that we go enjoy as a, you know, as an entertainment that we don't want to live through. We don't want to be in a slasher movie. But when you add like an erection and you add masturbation and ejaculation, mm-hmm. people are like, oh, well, I, obviously this means I have to do it. Exactly, which is not true. And I think it's, I mean, it's the sexual equivalent of a roller coaster. You know, you don't actually want to be flung around in the air unless there's, it's in control. And bear in mind, in a masturbatory scenario, you are kind of playing the role of a demigod. You get to control everyone's actions, even if it's unconscious. You are the, you are an author. You're writing the story. You get to have everyone behave exactly as you want. And the real life scenario will not play out that way. Because you, you and as you say, if you're going to do something like that, baby steps because you you don't want to be sh- to be shocked and really hurt. You're good at the sex advice thing. That's a really astute observation. You know, in fantasy it's perfect and you're the author. You're in complete control. Yeah. In reality, if you're going to give your girlfriend permission to flirt with somebody else in front of you, she may act in such a way or just have a look on her face in the moment that you're not in control of that takes it from an arousing thing to witness to something that's terribly upsetting to witness. And of course you would just have to know yourself really well. That's why those baby steps, if you're interested in hot wifing or stag vixen or cuckolding, those baby steps are so crucial. You don't want to have a meltdown on your partner while they're having sex with somebody else with your permission, because they'll never forgive you for no tricking them like that. And also, it would be tra- it would be traumatic for your partner. I mean, really, really traumatic for your partner if that's happening, and you then decide in the room or whatever that you can't do it, and you unconsciously or consciously hold it against them. That I mean, that's just totally unfair. So, so be careful. Always be careful with those baby steps. So, you have a new book coming out. I do. Which is called. I do. Uh, do let's have another drink, uh, which is both uh, the title of my book and the chant I used for about six months while writing it to get my friends to stay out later than they wanted to. Uh, <laughs> do let's have another drink is a is a biography of the late Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. It's 101 anecdotes, one for each year of her life. This is sort of like a dinner party of a book. It's anecdotes. It, goes over her feud with Wallace Simpson, what she really thought of Princess Diana. There are stories from her friends and some of her enemies there that haven't been published before. I made every drink that she thoroughly enjoyed. And when I saw my friend uh, Aoife turned up at a dinner party afterwards and I opened the door, it was about two months later, the first thing she said was, I am not having another of those fucking Queen Mother drinks. I didn't have her <laughs> for a week and a half. They're potent. I, I assume there are fewer beheadings in Do Let's Have Another Drink than in Young, Damned, and Fair. Fewer than in Young, Damned, and Fair, but probably the Queen Mother. There are a couple of people she would have beheaded if she could have beheaded. Oh, there are, there are social decapitations. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are some. She had an absolutely brilliant sense of humor. It was really sharp and really funny. I'll, I'll share one that I, I just find so endearing, which was that she was really good friends with the British playwright Noel Coward. And he didn't know, this is like the 1930s, he didn't know if she knew he was gay, and obviously it was still illegal. 
at the time in the United Kingdom. And they were going to the opera together and the household cavalry, who if any of your listeners have seen, seen sort of the tripping of the colour, they are the British soldiers with the gleaming silver breastplates and the huge hats with the, the or helmet, sorry, with the plume. So they were lining up in attendance. And uh, as the Queen Mother walked up the stairs and she saw Noel's eyes trail over to these sort of beefcakes and breastplates. And she, <laughs> and, she, and she whispered under her breath, I wouldn't if I were you, Noel. They count them before they put them out. And it was... <laughs> <laughs> Is there any truth to these? Sometimes it's I see it called an apocryphal story that like, she had a lot of gay men on her household a staff. Because these were people yeah. without like... Families of their mm-hmm. own to go home mm-hmm. to at the end of the night. They could t- give their whole lives to her yeah. and the royal family. They called one of them backstairs Billy. They called one of them backstairs Billy for multiple reasons. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story that she called down and said, can one of you old queens down there bring this old queen up here a drink? Yeah. I heard that from seven or eight people. Gareth Russell, author of Young and Damned and Fair, The Life of Catherine Howard, fifth wife of King Henry VIII, also the author of the upcoming Do Let's Have Another Drink, 101 Anecdotes About Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. And also, just for uh, quickly, your Instagram account, uh, underscore Gareth Russell, your stories are the most engaging Instagram stories that don't feature an Olympic diver in a Spino, I have to say. <laughs> you do on this date stories about the most fascinating you know, moments in history, people you've never heard of, royals you've never heard of, not just Brit, but continental. And anybody who has even a passing interest in in history should be following you on Instagram. I've learned so much and I went and sought out books and uh, articles about people I'd never heard of before that I heard of on your Instagram account. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, oh, thank you very much. Your Instagram account, that. I think, is one of the things that kept me sane during the pandemic. Oh, th- that means a huge amount. Thank you very much. All right. That was my conversation with author and historian Gareth Russell. I hope you enjoyed that. As much as I did, we actually continued to speak, me and Gareth. We geeked out for their 15 or 20 minutes about all sorts of, uh, you know, the sort of things royal history geeks like to geek out at each other about. We're going to have Gareth back on the show when his next book comes out because wasn't he great at giving sex advice? Really, really good at it. Going to have him back. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Sex and Politics, our special bonus extra podcast for Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. Thank you all for your support. Thank you for being Magnum subs. And we'll have another sex and politics for you again very soon.